I'm Annie from Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna from Vienna, Austria. We are the hosts of Fresh Hell, your international podcast that covers murder, mystery and the macabre throughout history. Are you interested in the 3,569 ways your household could have killed you in the Victorian era? Do you know how malaria and syphilis played a role in the John List family murders? And have you ever wondered what Prince Albert's sex chair had to do with the murder of Stanford White? Okay, nothing. It had nothing to do with it. We're still telling you about it, though. It's a pretty great sex chair. If you're looking for another show that talks about Ted Bundy, this is probably not the podcast for you. But if you're looking for two women that cover lesser-known cases from all over the world with a lot of background information. So much background information that you will rock your local pub quiz from now on. Then find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast app. We also have German cannibals. See you soon. Tschüss. Hey, Peoples for the People fans. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen. And if you want to stay updated on new happenings as I uncover things, go over to Twitter and give me a follow, at AlexPeebles93. That's where you can find information about new episodes coming out and where you'll see exactly what I've dug up in the process of creating each episode. And if you have any questions for me about the show, feel free to tweet at me, and I'll do my best to get back at you. This podcast has language that might be offensive to some. It was April 3rd, 1994, a snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction at the D&W convenience store in Mexico, where she worked, and then disappeared. But the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen? Heavy grabbed her from behind the counter and dragged her out the door and threw her in the back of Michael's Borch van. I didn't know Michael Borch had a white van. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. They didn't the van. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? He laid down in two areas, which was a sign, it's an indication that there were human remains. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. They would have put that van on my trailer, and Heidi would have been in that van. That's where it would have went, right to the shredder. I've been in this since from day one. And, you know, there's nothing else I can say. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the story of a small town kidnapping, where corruption got in the way of justice. The truth is finally coming out. In the last episode. The 2015 hearing to determine whether Gary Thibodeau should be granted a new trial concluded with a paradoxical decision upholding his conviction. Judge Daniel King contradicted himself on a major point. During the proceedings, he declared that Heidi Allen was indeed a confidential drug informant for police and that this fact was so well established it was unnecessary for the defense to introduce more evidence in support of it. Yet one of the central points in his final decision was that Heidi was not a drug informant, and so therefore, there was no exculpatory material for the district attorney's office to turn over. Part of the reason for the 2015 hearing was to decide whether former district attorney Donald Dodd turned over documents pertaining to Heidi's work as a police informant. As we heard from Gary's trial attorney, Joe Fahey, in the last episode, had he received those documents, it would have been a completely different trial. Here's the point. Since it was clear through Fahey's testimony and the original trial transcripts that those CI documents were not turned over, there needed to be a reason they were never turned over to avoid overturning Gary's conviction. So if King denied Heidi ever worked with police, then there was nothing for the DA to turn over, and therefore, there was no Brady violation or prosecutorial misconduct, which is exactly what King did. The decision was a heavy blow to Gary and his defense team, a blow that would be countered by my mother, Lisa Peebles. She led the charge defending Gary and brought King's decision before a panel of judges in the appellate division. Lisa Peebles and D.A. Greg Oaks 
faced off once more in February of 2017. And during his oral argument, Oaks could not deny that what had been offered in the 2015 hearing could have resulted in Gary being granted a new trial. My question to you is this. If the third-party statements were admissible, would it be enough to warrant a new trial in this case? If those statements were admissible on, them, on themselves? Because that's really the crux of this case. Okay. Again, against penal interest, admissibility. Your Honor, if some of those uh, statements were introduced or allowed into evidence, it may be enough to result in a new trial. This is Peebles for the People. And I'm Alex Peebles. I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm tired of being held down. And I'm tired of watching these people die. Judge Daniel King's decision to deny Gary Thibodeau a new trial was issued in March of 2016. That meant Gary, though still hoping for justice, would have to wait nearly another year for a chance to have his case heard. This time, his case would be heard by a panel of four justices in the appellate division. Each side was granted five minutes to argue its case in front of the panel. After hearing the oral arguments and reviewing the submissions by the lawyers, which included much of the case file, transcripts, and the prior decision made by King, the panel would decide to affirm King's decision or grant Gary a new trial. Five minutes is not a lot of time to argue a case that had developed thousands of leads and nuances over two decades. Regardless, Lisa Peebles saw this as an opportunity for the truth to come out. May it please the court, I'm here today to address a miscarriage of justice that occurred more than 21 years ago when Gary Thibodeau was convicted of a crime he didn't commit. Gary Thibodeau was convicted of kidnapping Heidi Allen, even though there was no eyewitness placing him at the DNW that morning. There was no forensic or physical evidence that connected him or his co-defendant brother to Heidi Allen. They had, the law enforcement had unfettered access to the van that Richard Thibodeau drove that morning, as well as both Richard Thibodeau and Gary Thibodeau's properties. Additionally, both Gary Thibodeau and his co-defendant brother, Richard, have always maintained their innocence to law enforcement, and the prosecution could do no more than guess at some type of motive. Since then, new evidence has surfaced over the course of the past 20 years, squarely pointing to three new suspects, James Steen, Michael Bohr, Roger Breckenridge. While she saw a gross miscarriage of justice, DA Greg Oakes did not. He fought to keep Gary behind bars. He went so far as to mischaracterize witness testimonies, as to discredit them. Specifically, the testimony of Tyler Hayes. Saying Michael Bohr, a statement that he made to Tyler Hayes at the bar. There's no indication and no admission of any wrongdoing there. It's basically a guy in a bar who's been drinking who says, I've got a theory. I think I know where she is. I think I know what happened. Quite frankly, you could go to any bar in Oswego County on a Friday night and probably find a few people in the bar that has their own theory on this particular case, and what they believe happened, and what they know happened. As has already been made clear in this podcast, Michael Bohr did not say he had a theory of what happened to Heidi. He was sobbing and said he knew what happened to her. Hayes testified to that in 2015. Hayes' run-in with Bohr at the Liberty Bell Tavern in 2000 was much different than what Oakes depicted. The encounter prompted Hayes to call the police that night, but the police never followed up on that call from Hayes. During his five minutes in front of the panel of judges, Oakes had a lot to say of Bohr. There are no facts that are specific to Michael Bohr's criminal history. The incidents in Wisconsin are important. Absolutely, it indicates a man who at one point in his life was prone to violence against women. But there were not unique facts that tied into this case. In fact, they're very dissimilar. In the two cases in Wisconsin, Mr. Bohr followed women home after work, left their place of employment, followed them in a vehicle into the first one incident where she was in a parking lot of her apartment complex, approached her under a ruse, and then tried to forcibly put her in a vehicle 
In the second incident, he followed her down the roadway, uh, basically causing her to go off the roadway and try to force himself into the van. This is done at around 3 a.m. On both of those incidents, the women were alone and separated, essentially doing it on the cover of darkness. Again, those two cases actually aren't even similar to each other because in the one instance, he was accompanied by his brother. In the other incidents, he was acting alone. Um, in this particular case, <clears throat> the defense points to the abduction, the forcible abduction of Heidi Allen. Your Honors, that's no different than saying if we had a burglary case. This person went into a home, this person went in through a window and committed a burglary, therefore we should be able to bring in his prior criminal history at every burglary case that comes forward. Again, there are no unique facts, there's no ways in which this was carried out that satisfies the modus operandi requirement to bring in Michael Bohr's criminal history. According to the FBI, between 2010 and 2019, on average, fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 were abducted by strangers per year, and an estimated 3.7 million burglaries occurred each year on average from 2003 to 2007. So, despite what Oakes said, it is not at all like finding someone with a burglary history because kidnappings are so rare. Also, the defense was not merely picking out a random Oswego County resident and throwing his name in the pool of possible suspects because he had a history of violence towards women. Bohr had been wrapped up in this case from the very beginning, when the post office called in a lead soon after Heidi went missing. The lead stated that for the two weeks following the disappearance, mail piled up in Bohr's P.O. box. Then, of course, there's his obsession with the case, his detailed accounts of what happened that he claimed a psychic told him, his clear motive to want to silence a drug informant, and the fact that he fit the 1994 FBI profile of the kidnapper. During his argument, Oakes tried to discredit William Pierce, the eyewitness who came forward and identified James Steen as the person he saw kidnapping Heidi. But more importantly, Pierce testified that Richard Thibodeau's van, the van that Oakes and police claim was the one used in the abduction, was absolutely not the van Pierce saw at the DNW store that morning. It's also crucial to restate that Oakes decided to hide Pierce's information from the defense until the last possible minute, which is a violation to the Brady Rule, as we heard former county court judge Jack Brandt say in the last episode. The obligation is when you discover it, not when you feel like turning it over. While Oakes saw Pierce as not credible, because Pierce came forward and realized he made a mistake in identifying Gary as the person he saw kidnapping Heidi, Oakes put a lot of weight on eyewitness Christopher Bivens, who couldn't identify anyone or any vehicles the morning Heidi was kidnapped. One of the arguments under 440 is that there's an actual, that he's actually innocent. The defense hasn't established that in this case, Your Honor. Again, you can look at the record, and if this court were to conclude that it believed he were actually innocent, of course, this court could reverse. But given the totality of the evidence that was presented, again, this court, not this particular bench, but this court reviewed the direct appeal. This court found that there's overwhelming evidence of Gary Thibodeau's guilt on the direct appeal. Looking at the eyewitness testimony, again, Mr. Bivens gave a description of individuals that fit the description of both Gary and Richard Thibodeau. What Oakes said wasn't true. Here's Bivens talking to police in 1994. Can you describe the man? Uh, the only thing I can estimate that he was uh, an older gentleman, uh, approximately in his 30s, husky built, uh, not trying to pull out his hair or what he was wearing. The girl had a light tinge brown hair. Okay, and explain the other guy. The other guy seemed like he was an older gentleman mm -hmm. walking towards the van. He was not running fast. He was just walking normally towards his van. He was wearing a jacket. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what color jacket it was, but I did see him wearing a coat. Uh, older, there must have been something there I seen to make me say he was older. But he was an older, and he was a husky man. Okay, and can you give me any further description? No, 
Okay, can you give me possibly his height? Approximately 5'11". Which one, the one walking the to the one van? The one walking towards the van. The one ahead of the girl was taller. The description that Bivens gave police in that interview absolutely did not resemble either Gary or Richard Thibodeau. During the hearing, Lisa Peebles was able to address the evolution of Bivens' statements. Christopher Bivens was the prosecution's key witness, and, and as to what transpired, didn't identify Gary Thibodeau, but identified a van, which also well, gets he, back to... He, he testified that he saw men who resembled the defendant and his brother struggling with a woman, didn't he? No, he didn't say resembling uh, Gary. The, you have to look at his description and how they morphed over time. His original description was that the defendant were, they were 5'11 and husky. Gary Thibodeau and Richard Thibodeau are nowhere close to 5'11", and they are certainly not husky. Bivens originally could not identify anyone or any vehicles. It was only when the sheriffs nudged him in the Thibodeau's direction that he identified Richard's van. Dodd painted Bivens as an automotive expert when he testified in 1995. This self-proclaimed expert identified the van he saw as a Chevy C10, but there is no such model. Aside from that, the sheriffs had Richard's van in their possession for more than 20 years and conducted multiple forensic searches for anything that linked Heidi to the van. They found nothing. Oakes believes the Thibodeau brothers cleaned the van out after abducting Heidi. We begin tonight with an NBC3 exclusive. Good evening, I'm Matt Mulcahy. Here he is talking to Syracuse reporter Matt Mulcahy. The FBI assisted local police with the search of the van. They found nothing, no sign of struggle, blood, hair, or fingerprints. How come they didn't find anything in Richard Thibodeau's van then? Well, one of the interesting questions is, you know, when they looked at it is, they talked about the absence of fingerprints and DNA and hair fibers kind of across the board, not just relating to Heidi Allen. Um, if you were to go to my vehicle right now, that's you know, used and traveled in, you're probably going to find fingerprints, DNA from other people, hair fibers from my kids. The question is, it would be unusual to find any person's vehicle to find a complete absence of any of those things. So the fact that there was a complete absence indicates to me that somebody was cleaning it and maybe taking special efforts to make sure that those types of things weren't found. Yet again, what Oaks said was not true. Here's former Syracuse Post-Standard reporter John O'Brien. We saw that and we immediately contacted Matt Mulcahy and said, you got to do a follow-up story. And to his credit, he did. And we sent him testimony and FBI reports showing that, in fact, there was, I think, four or five fingerprints found in the van. There was bags and bags of um, hair, fiber, other material that they took out, the police and the FBI examined. And for him to say complete absence of evidence is a complete lie. And uh, to his credit, um, Mulcahy did go back and do a follow-up story with Oakes. And Oakes had a lame-ass explanation for what he was talking about. Also, do you remember what the juror from Richard's trial said? They didn't have it. They said that the, they cleaned up the truck and they couldn't find any hair or anything else in there. They could have grew potatoes in the back of that truck. It was so filthy and shit. And not to find any hair or skin or anything else in there. Everything they said was just bullshit. Still, Oakes believes witness accounts from the morning Heidi was abducted prove Gary's guilt. Uh, Mr. Bivens described being at the store that morning and his purchase, and essentially through him and Mr. Sorkowski established there was a very small window, a matter of minutes, a minute or two, in which this abduction could have taken place. And Mr. Sorkowski, in leaving the store, saw a van, saw a person fitting Richard Thibodeau's description walking into the store. And significantly, right after Richard Thibodeau walked into the store, the van moved several feet closer to the doors, which indicates there was a second person who was operating that van. That same van was identified by its appearance, by its license plate by Mr. Swarkowski. Again, he thought kind of humorously when he saw it earlier, it had the license plate that began with PU, and he thought that was very apt and fitting. The entirety of what Oakes just said needs to be addressed. First of all, Bivens was never at the store as Oakes claimed. 
Bivens merely drove by the store. And we don't have a solidified time of when he drove by the store. Nor do we know how fast Bivens was driving when he went by because his account of that morning changed a handful of times. Secondly, Oak said Swinskowski identified a man fitting Richard Thibodeau's description and a van that fit the description of Richard's van, almost as if to purposefully leave out the part that we know Richard was there that morning because he called police to offer that information. As a brief aside, Deputy Chris Van Patten met Richard, who was with his family, at 11 a.m. that morning. That doesn't give Richard a lot of time to kidnap, kill, and dispose of Heidi before he himself called police shortly after 10 a.m. to say he purchased cigarettes from the D&W that morning. Who would call police two hours after kidnapping someone and tell them they were at the scene of the crime? That just doesn't make sense. Lastly, in his first statement to police, Swinskowski never mentioned the van moving and said he and Richard Thibodeau were pulling out of the parking lot at the same time. The day after Heidi went missing, that is what Swinskowski told police. He saw Richard Thibodeau's van leaving the store at the same time he was. Based on that statement alone, Richard could not have been the kidnapper. Swinskowski is yet another example of a witness changing his statement after talking with the sheriffs multiple times. Before we go any further, let's take a quick break. This episode of Peebles for the People is brought to you in part by Best Fiends, the puzzle game I always turn to to escape for a bit. What's great about Best Fiends is as I decompress, I'm also engaged solving fun and challenging puzzles. All of my siblings and I love this game. What's really cool is it gives us the chance to have some friendly competition and remain close while we're all scattered across the country. My favorite part about Best Fiends though has to be exploring the new worlds. I'm traversing through the towering treetops right now. What an awesome challenge. See, this is not just your run-of-the-mill puzzle game. It's an adventure in the palm of your hand. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. It's hard to fathom how any court could say that Gary was convicted based on overwhelming evidence. Four months after lawyers presented their case to the appellate division, a decision was issued. On June 9, 2017, by a vote of 3-1, to one, the panel affirmed King's decision denying Gary's motion to vacate his conviction. Um, we were very disappointed. It was really like a punch in the gut to see that. We didn't know which way the, the appellate division was going to go after we argued, but we tried to remain optimistic. And then to think, oh, we won, and then to realize, no, we didn't. Uh, and then to see the dissent um, in the thoroughness of that decision versus the lack of analysis in the majority that sort of just rubber stamped the lower court, it was very, very disappointing. But again, it was just, it, it takes a day and then you're basically like, okay, now we go to the next step. We have to fight and we have to go to the next level. And that's really where we were at that point. We were ready to fight and continue moving on. Although it was another disappointment for Gary, there was a silver lining. For the first time since his 1995 conviction, there was a judge who was willing to stand up for Gary. Quote, In my opinion, defendant met his burden of establishing all six factors by a preponderance of the evidence, and I therefore conclude that the court abused its discretion in denying the motion. End quote. Judge John Centra disagreed with the affirmation in one of the stronger dissenting opinions 
former TV reporter Alex Dunbar has ever read. I remember reading Justice Center's dissent, and I think what's kind of stunning about it is the degree to which he understands the case. He under he he truly. I don't want to oversimplify it, but reading it, you can just see like he really looked into this and understands what is being talked about and, and what the evidence is, and has a much better factual understanding of this case. Um, you know, he comes right out and saying, you know, he, he believes that the, the court has abused its discretion in denying this motion. Uh, he found that on almost every instance, he had met the criteria for a new trial. Um, he, I, 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 again, I'm not a lawyer, and, and maybe a lawyer could provide better analysis on this, but I would I will go to my grave believing that Centra has a better understanding of hearsay evidence and the rules regarding hearsay evidence than Judge King did at the appeal hearing. Centra's decision clearly stated that William Pierce's testimony alone would have been enough to grant Gary a new trial. On top of Pierce, Centra decided the statements by Tanya Priest, Amanda Braley, Chris Combs, along with Jen Westcott's recorded statement, would be admissible at trial and likely would have changed the outcome. Quote, Finally, I believe a new trial should be granted based simply on the totality of the new evidence introduced at the hearing. There were numerous third-party admissions attributed to Steen, Breckenridge, and Bohr. This is not a case where there was just one offhand remark about Heidi's abduction. And I conclude that the sheer number of independent confessions provided additional corroboration for each. Many of the third-party admissions cross-corroborated the others. Many of the witnesses were unknown to each other, yet they gave similar testimony regarding declarations that were made to them. I therefore believe a new trial should be granted. End quote. Although Centra's dissent gave the defense a better shot at taking their case to the Court of Appeals, it did nothing more for Gary than give him more reason to lose all faith in our system. No one knows who wrote the decision made by the appellate division. None of the judges were willing to put their name on it. I've never seen an opinion, a majority opinion, where there wasn't an, somebody who claimed authorship of the opinion. So I thought that was a bit unusual. How could it be that no one had the courage to own up to writing the decision that kept a man in prison? Maybe the answer to that question lies within the decision. Here's Dunbar again. There was no name was actually put on the majority opinion. That we don't know, no, no justice was willing to sign their name as that they wrote the you know, as the writer of the majority opinion. That's pretty terrible, I, and and it really should raise questions about what you know. That did they really? So no one felt good enough about this to sign their name to it that they were willing to keep this man in jail, not grant him a new trial, and, and that they believed this, you know, compel, quote, quote, compelling circumstantial evidence, but none of them would sign their name to it. No one was really willing to take that step. I, 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 I think that's embarrassing. There is something else I'd like to point out. The panel of justices making the decision at the appellate division should have been composed of five judges. However, as Lisa Peebles walked up to the podium to defend Gary, one of the judges walked out recusing himself from the case. It's unclear why Judge Brian DeJoseph recused himself. I bring this up because having one more judge hear this case could have swayed the decision. It's easier to stand by a decision made by an institution that has been maintained by others rather than follow one person standing alone against the institution's decision. Hope was still not lost for Gary, however. Lisa Peebles took his flight to the highest court in New York State, the New York State Court of Appeals. On April 24, 2018, Gary's defense team 
made the trip down to Albany to present their case once more. This time, in front of a panel of seven justices. It had been five years since Lisa Peebles first got involved in Gary's case, and time was running out for him, as his health had quickly taken a turn for the worse. Lisa Peebles knew this. Good afternoon, counsel. Uh, good afternoon, your honors. May it please the court. My name is Lisa Peebles. I represent Gary Thibodeau, the appellant in this action. Uh, with the court's permission, I'd, I'd like to request two minutes for rebuttal. You may have two minutes. Thank you. If, the, if a jury had heard the newly discovered evidence that had been presented to the lower court, Gary Thibodeau would be home with his family today. Unlike the arguments in front of the appellate division, the judges on this panel jumped in right away with questions. But Westcott, I mean, I, I read the transcript of the call, right? And, and she didn't say very much on the recorded call. Um, and, and she was all over the place. She, she recant, not recanted exactly, but she denied what she said. And, and so doesn't that just really boil down to her credibility? That was Judge Leslie Stein saying she read through the transcript of the call and that Westcott didn't say much. Didn't say much. As a refresher, these are excerpts from that call. Did you even know that they, this was Heidi that they brought there and that this is what they were going to do? Uh-uh. You had no clue that they just showed up with her? Yeah. Oh, what a bad position for you. Surprised scared the shit out of you. Well, they, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. Yeah, that's... They did in the van. What'd they do, just leave her in the van when they got to your house? Yeah. How the heck what did you idea. find out it was Heidi in the end? I didn't. I just put two and two together. Right. Oh, when they swarmed your house? Yeah. You were young. Uh, I know. It was for cocaine. It was for cocaine? Yeah. It sounds like the area. It's kind of sad that that even happened. Is that why you guys went to Florida? Uh-huh. Why didn't you say anything? Because they scared you, hon? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> well, who scared you, Roger? Probably Roger living with you? Yeah. Yeah. It was all crazy. Did you ever think about just turning Roger in for it? Nope. No. Nope. Things scared you that bad, huh? I would, never op I would never open a can of worms like that. Right. Why? I hate him. <laughs> He's done so much to you. you know? uh, and I've been through enough. I don't want to even deal with any, anything new. No, I can't say as I blame you. God almighty. I'm not, I'm not doing the investigator's job. I don't get paid enough. They're not going <laughs> to give me a big reward. I really, uh, in my own head, dropped that shit. Right. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. But it took me a while to get it gone. If that phone call wouldn't be enough on its own to cast doubt on Gary's guilt, the accompanied police interrogations of Westcott might. Here's Lisa Peebles again in the Court of Appeals hearing. Certainly, Mr. Thibodeau would have a due process right to have a jury hear this. Now, what's interesting is Jennifer Westcott's reaction when she was confronted by law enforcement, which is videotaped, which we also offered as part of the evidentiary hearing, where she flat out denies ever having this conversation with Tanya Priest. When she's confronted that, the, that it was recorded, she thinks, Jen, she thinks Tanya Priest recorded it. So she says, well, she chopped something. And then when they say, well, no, I heard the tape, we monitored it, then she said, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Am I going to be in trouble? That's, those facts should have been permitted for a jury to look at. And the court precluded the defense from introducing this by suggesting it would be inadmissible because it didn't meet these hearsay exceptions. And that, in fact, is where the court erred as a matter of law. Although each side was given about 10 minutes to present its case and answer questions from the panel, it still was not enough time to truly demonstrate how everything played out. After all, 
we're talking about a case that had been building for more than 20 years. Still, Gary's defense team was optimistic a favorable decision would be returned. Based on the questions the panel had for Oaks, it seemed Gary might get the decision he had long been waiting for. What about the sheer number of these separate and, and seemingly unrelated confessions by, by these three men and with some independent corroborate, corroboration? Well, what, what do we make of that? I mean, does that have any fact? I mean, does that have any result? Well, to your question, Your Honor, the fact that there are multiple statements, God bless you, Thank you. Uh, multiple statements doesn't make the independent statements more admissible. The fact that a lie or an exaggeration is repeated multiple times doesn't make it inherently more reliable or admissible under the court. And part of the problem we received in this case... It would be a factor, right? Potentially a factor, but unique to this case is once the 440 motion was filed... Uh, there are a number of stories in the media, and in fact, it seemed that pretty much every affidavit, every video, every recording somehow made its way to Syracuse.com, was published online, and really polluted the entire pool. So when somebody came forward with information, we had no idea whether it was somebody who had actual credible information based upon their independent knowledge, if they were just reading stuff online and coming forward seeking their 15 minutes of fame. By saying that, Oaks was accusing these witnesses of lying under oath. How and when these witnesses came forward, or in some cases were found by the defense, contradicts the entirety of his claim. Here's Lisa Peebles on that. It infuriated Oaks that he could not control the narrative that was being put out by the media. So what he tried to do, or what he did, was argue and try to convince the judges that the witnesses who came forward were simply looking for some notoriety or some 15 minutes of fame. Um, but when you go through each witness and how they came forward, um, it completely undermines that argument by Oaks. First of all, you know, four people right away you can name that were, came forward long before there was any discussion in the media about new evidence. Tanya Priest is how this investigation began. She was the one who disclosed the name Amanda Braley. But Megan Shaw also came forward because she was interviewed by law enforcement right after Tanya Priest. Tyler Hayes, we know, came forward in 2000 because he called in a lead after he was uh, had the encounter with Michael Bohr at the Liberty Bell Tavern. Jessica Howard reported in 2010 uh, that, in fact, Roger Breckenridge had made admissions about involvement in Heidi Allen's abduction. The information from Hayes and Howard, that information wasn't turned over to us until we filed the motion for a new trial. Jessica Howard's information was given to us a week before uh, the hearing began. So this idea that, you know, these people came forward because they were looking for some 15 minutes of fame is absolutely absurd, especially because we had to beg many of these people to testify. We had to subpoena them to court. Uh, for example, um, Amanda Braley was so fearful. We went to her because we saw that she had tried to find a cabin in the woods with Priest back in 2006 after Steen made the admissions to Priest. In fact, you know, she confirmed that that happened and also explained what she had heard two of the three new suspects say about their involvement in Heidi Allen. But uh, Amanda Braley was petrified when we went to see her. She was not willing to sign an affidavit. Uh, like I said, it took a lot of coaxing to get her to even agree to cooperate with us. We were going to subpoena her no matter what. Um, but, you know, she was not some willing participant in this whole thing, at least not initially. And uh, same with Megan Shaw. She had already talked to law enforcement, but the last thing she wanted to do was put herself in harm's way. She was petrified. So, and they said as much when they were testifying at the hearing. So there was no wanting 15 minutes of fame in this case. They didn't want to even be videotaped during their testimony. Oaks tried discrediting Braley in front of the New York State Court of Appeals. You hear Justice Jen Rivera interrupt him. With Amanda Braley, um, again, her statement is really probably fails on multiple prongs that he doesn't show competent evidence. Um, but again, the statement is essentially, I'm never going to go to prison for what we did to Heidi. 
Well, it doesn't say what he did. We have no idea if it relates to this case or something else. But interestingly, this came out during cross-examination. of. And there are no inferences that can be drawn based on all of the evidence they presented? There are perhaps some inferences that can be drawn, but when we talk about reliability, one of the issues that came out in cross-examination of Amanda Braley is as part of the defense motion, they uh, submitted an affidavit from Amanda Braley. Uh, Ms. Peebles or one of her investigators took that statement from her that was submitted as part of their motion papers. In that statement, she never referenced the statement about, I'm never going to go to prison for what I did. I cross-examined her about that issue. And again, her explanation was, well, I did tell defense counsel, they just forgot to put it in there. Again, that, that itself strains credibility. Um, and again, she's saying that she really believed uh, these statements, yet she was with Tanya Priest in the woods walking. Oaks was saying Braley was not credible because she was walking in the woods with Priest. That doesn't make sense. That actually proves credibility because those two were in the woods looking for the cabin after they heard admissions from Steen or Breckenridge. As Justice Rivera pointed out, obviously an inference could be drawn. Something that Oaks left out of his argument was Braley testified that Breckenridge said they put Heidi in a van, crushed it, and sent it to Canada. Braley also testified that Westcott said she had nothing to do with the kidnapping, that she only helped junk the van. Oakes then turned to why it was ridiculous for the defense to try to admit Bohr's criminal history. Again, I think the court correctly decided those issues. There is no MO other than the fact of a broad sense of trying to abduct a female. There's nothing specific or particular about the manner in which that was carried out. And interestingly, to go to your point, um, Judge Fahey, again, the defense has limited their argument to those three statements or pieces of evidence for the purpose of this appeal. The defense has not argued before this court that any of the statements attributed to Michael Bohr should be admitted. Judge Centro didn't find that any of the statements attributed to Michael Bohr should be submitted. My question so, on the Molyneux was really a little different from what you anticipated. It's whether the defense needs to meet the same legal test that the prosecution would need to introduce Molyneux-type evidence. And I believe they do, Your Honor. Um, again, showing that it either goes to intent or a motive or lack of mistake or modus operandi, that it was carried out in a particular fashion. Because otherwise, the defense who's trying to introduce third-party culpability evidence could simply pick the worst guy in the jail, the worst guy in the community, and say, look, he's got these rape convictions, he's got these burglary convictions, all of that's going to come in, and it leads to juror confusion and takes away from the central issue is, well, did they commit this particular act? But didn't they present evidence that the three are connected to this crime, that you could draw inferences to that effect, or from their own statements? Well, and again... Come to that conclusion? Well, this statement uh, that Roger, uh, James Dean made... Again, according to Tanya Priest, implicated Michael Bohr. Uh, but again, I don't think that necessarily should be used against Michael Bohr. But again, all the statements are attributed to Michael Bohr himself. Again, the hearing court and the appellate division found didn't meet the standard for declarations against penal interest. And the defense hasn't even argued that either of those courts have erred. Again, before this court, they're not asking you to consider the admissibility of any of the statements of Michael Bohr. Um, so the point I was going to make is, if none of those statements regarding Michael Bohr are being admitted, how does his criminal history come in? Because clearly he was being offered as propensity evidence to show that he's a bad guy, capable of violent acts, and you should just, jury, you should think he's a bad guy and did this particular act. Before the conclusion of the hearing, Lisa Peebles had the chance to respond to Oaks. I'm just going to lead off with where Mr. Oaks ended um, with regard to the Michael Bohr and the reverse Molyneux uh, evidence. First of all, we have not abandoned any claim regarding any admissions made by Michael Bohr. Part of our argument to this court deals with the reverse Molyneux, and we're asking the court to consider it into context. We did not cherry pick Michael Bohr as a new suspect because we found that he had some prior attempted abductions and rape and attempted murder of other women. Michael Bohr's name came to light first in 2000, which the defense didn't know because Tyler Hayes called the sheriff's department and said this man is making admissions about 
the abduction of Heidi Allen. It concerned him. We never got that until we filed our 440 motion. Tyler Hayes reached out to us when he heard about it because he saw Michael Bohr's picture plastered on the media. Come to find out, he had tried to reach out to the sheriff's department back in 2000. Michael Bohr was thereafter interviewed after we or prior to our motion by the Oswego County Sheriff's Department. During that interview, they said, well, people think you were involved in this. He throws out the fact that Heidi Allen's body might be somewhere in a junkyard, Crosby Hill, which just happens to be where Murtaugh's junkyard is, which is where Jennifer Westcott was sending text messages before she went to be interviewed by law enforcement. This information was presented, and there was no reason under the law why it should not be able to be presented to a jury so that a jury can determine whether or not it would make a difference in the outcome, and we think it would. Now, with regard to, again, Michael Bohr, he told law enforcement when he was being interviewed that he doesn't have the capacity, he's not a violent man, and that's why he couldn't have done this. Well, we found out that that wasn't true. He does have a very violent past. So we're not offering it as some sort of freestanding propensity. He did it once, he did it again. We're offering it into context that he lived a half a mile down the road. He said he went to the store every day, that Heidi Allen made him sandwiches. He collected a box of written materials he wrote himself. I tried to introduce those during the evidentiary hearing. The court would not allow me to introduce those documents. I tried to question him about the meaning behind some of what he wrote. He's living in an RV. He has this box on the ch uh, 20 years later, he still has this box. So the people chalked him up to some nutball, not recognizing that the man is a psychopath who had tried to abduct and kidnap women in the past. The cards were on the table. All Gary could do now was wait, something he had grown accustomed to after spending more than two decades fighting for his innocence. But by the time the decision came, Gary's health had deteriorated, and it became clear he was running out of time. Again, it was nerve-wracking waiting because we weren't sure when we were going to get a decision, and it was we had to check the website regularly to see whether there was a published decision because, you know, we didn't... We were going to get notified, but it was going to be posted before we would ever receive a decision in the mail. So uh, we had to check and um, just so happened it was June again, a year after we had gotten the decision from the appellate division that um, we got, we received word. In a four to three decision, Gary's request for a new trial was denied. Tonight, the Oswego County District Attorney is standing behind the court's decision to deny a new trial for Gary Thibodeau. Today, the Court of Appeals affirmed the appellate division's decision uh, upholding Judge King's denial of Gary Thibodeau's 440 motion, which he was seeking a new trial based upon an alleged Brady violation and upon a claim of newly discovered evidence. The court's opinion, although split four to three, uh, was absolutely correct in all respects. I had my phone sitting on the table where I was at this conference and I was listening to a speaker and I saw my phone and it buzzed and I, I waited a minute and then I turned it over and I saw uh, Gary Thibodeau's last chance for an appeal was denied in the Heidi Allen kidnapping case. I literally found out about the decision by looking at my phone after it was posted in the news. So it was, it was gut-wrenching. It actually... Um, it felt like it knocked the wind out of me when I saw that. I just ran out of the room. Though a majority affirmed the ruling of the lower courts, the Honorable Jenny Rivera wrote the dissenting opinion. Quote, Defendant Gary Thibodeau has been incarcerated for over two decades, almost a third of his life, for the kidnapping of a young woman who disappeared one morning and was never seen again. No physical or forensic evidence connected defendant to the abduction, and no witness ever identified defendant as the kidnapper, or placed him at the scene where the victim was taken. Nor has defendant confessed to having committed the crime. Rather, he has always maintained his innocence. He now asserts that newly discovered evidence points to three men who have admitted to abducting and murdering the victim. Turning to the state courts, Defendant asks for an opportunity 
to present this third-party culpability evidence to a jury, which would once again decide his fate. I believe the law affords him such opportunity. End quote. Justices Rowan Wilson and Paul Feynman concurred with Rivera's dissent. Although the decision was far from unanimous, during his press conference, Oakes made it seem like it was. Unfortunately, over the last few years, the defense attorneys, and particularly Lisa Peebles, has challenged the credibility and the integrity of the Oswego County Sheriff's Office and the Oswego County DA's Office. We have now heard from every judge that have heard this case that there is no basis to challenge the integrity of this office or the Sheriff's Office. That every judge who has heard this matter over the last four years has concluded that we followed the U.S. Constitution. We followed the state constitution. We turned over everything that was required to be turned over and that we gave him a full and fair trial on that issue. I guess what's most disturbing to me is it's one thing for a defense attorney to attack an institution, an office, law enforcement in general. But attorney Peebles also named names during that time and specifically cited former district attorney Donald Dodd and essentially called him unethical, and applied an outright set that he withheld material that should have been turned over, and not just that it was done mistakenly or by admission, but the idea that it was done intentionally. It's insulting, and it's unfair. And we now have seven justices of the highest court of the state saying that that did not occur. Quite frankly, I think Attorney Peebles owes Donald Dodd and the members of the Sheriff's Office and DA's Office at that time an unequivocal apology for making those baseless accusations. Even as we move forward with this case, we always remain open-minded as prosecutors, as law enforcement. Again, based upon all the evidence that I've seen, based upon the trial evidence, the hearing testimony, all the reports of the Sheriff's Office and the DA's Office have received over the years, Again, it supports the finding of the jury. It supports the finding of the appellate division and the court of appeals. But let me be clear. If tomorrow someone came forward with competent, credible, and reliable evidence to show that Gary Thibodeau was innocent, truly innocent, we would be the first to say let him out of jail and to move to grant him a new trial. Oaks's actions make his remarks about finding justice hollow. Despite him saying he and the DA's office did everything right and Gary got a fair shake, that was clearly not the case. Need I remind you that Oaks hid exculpatory information from the defense until the eve of the hearing in front of Judge King? Based on the Brady rule, that was a violation. Here's Lisa Peebles on Oaks's press conference. And my response to that is he ought to be ashamed of himself, number one, for even suggesting that that's the case. That is the most disingenuous, ridiculous uh, demand I've ever heard. And it, over my dead body, would I ever apologize to anybody? Um, I would do it all over again and then some if I had the chance. And, um, you know, like I said, it's corruption and a cover-up if I've ever seen one. So it did nothing to vindicate the district attorney's office or the sheriff's department. Despite the heartbreaking decision, Lisa Peebles still had hope. Tonight, a dying man adamantly maintains his innocence 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen. From behind the prison walls of Coxsackie Correctional, Gary Thibodeau appears physically exhausted, and he has nearly exhausted his chances for winning a new trial. The kidnapping of Heidi Allen on Right now, that same court of appeals has been asked to hear a re-argument of Gary Thibodeau's case. In the last few days, the Oswego County District Attorney urged that court to deny that request and keep this man in prison, who had been found guilty by a jury of his peers. My um, research and writing chief uh, of appeals, James Egan, and I went through. We, he came up with the idea that we should ask 
them to reconsider because we only needed one judge to change his or her mind. And uh, we thought we could probably do that because we noticed that there were some factual mistakes that were in the decision. So we put together a motion for reconsideration and filed it as quickly as we could. And then, uh, and, and and that was pending. But we also knew the next avenue available for Gary was going to be federal court. And all along we anticipated probably having to go to federal court um, as his last resort. So, you know, we weren't done. We had, we had other avenues to pursue and we had every intention on doing that. So, you know, there, it wasn't over. But before the Court of Appeals had a chance to reconsider, Gary Thibodeau succumbed to his ailing health. He passed away on August 12, 2018. He was 64 years old. Now, two victims have been taken by this heinous crime, but neither Gary nor Heidi's story was over. On the day of Gary's funeral, the Oswego County Sheriff's decided it was time to give his brother Richard's van back. The van that, to this day, Oaks and the Sheriff's Office claim was the van used to kidnap Heidi. Imagine that. The van supposedly used in Heidi's kidnapping, an open case, was given back on the day of Gary's funeral. It's difficult for me to wrap my head around that. The case is still open. If that was the van used to kidnap Heidi, does it make any sense to return it to Richard? The timing of it makes it even more difficult to understand. Almost a year after I first met Richard to talk about this story, I took a ride with him in that van. Yeah. When did they give it back? Uh, a couple years ago. Two years ago, what's the, uh, the tw 2000? It was right after my brother died. Why did they give it back? The case was over with. They didn't have no reason to keep the van anymore. Because they were trying to hold it for evidence against my brother. After he got it back, Richard changed the color of the van to red. He told me he wants to leave the past in the past. I, I, I just want to try and forget, but I know I can. It's... It's not going to happen. I just, it's, it's with me every day, but it'd be nice to forget it, but you can't. So. This van clearly means a lot to you. You could yeah. have just gotten rid of it. No, no. I mean, I've been after 25 years to get it back, and it took me 25 years to get it. It, it, it took my brother to die to get my van. You believe that? That's kind of asinine if you ask me but what really happened on Easter Sunday morning in 1994 we may never know what we do know is that Gary and Richard Thibodeau have always maintained their innocence never once wavering we also know that Heidi was a confidential informant and that she was likely taken because her identity as such was exposed to the public. Where is she now? The most likely scenario is that Breckenridge, Bohr, and Steen killed her, tried burning her, then put her charred remains in a van that was stolen from Gary's property by Breckenridge and Richard Murtaugh, crushed the van, and had Steen transported up to a scrapyard in Canada where the van and Heidi Allen were shredded. Gary Thibodeau wasn't going to be given the key to the city. In fact, I'm sure that many people in the community would describe him as kind of a rabble-rouser. But there was something more to Gary that not many people were ever able to see. Although he spent nearly a third of his life in prison, Gary was a gentle man and had a quick wit. 
Um, he was really kind of a trip when you talk to him and he was always joking and laughing and I'm not quite sure that most people in his situation would be capable of doing that. So uh, when he would write letters saying, I'm a new soul, when I come back, I'm going to be a better person, um, he was very insightful. And I think that, you know, I really appreciated how intelligent he was, even though he wasn't necessarily the most articulate um, speaker at times, he definitely had good insight into himself and life and people. So, you know, yeah, we had a good connection and he was a good person. And, uh, and, and I'm sad that I wasn't able to fulfill a promise that I made to him. Gary and Lisa Peebles grew close over the five-year appeal process before he passed. He wrote her dozens of letters from behind bars. Many of them begin with, Hey Peebs. And all of them were signed, Gary the Innocent. Gary will always hold a special place in my heart because of who he was and what he went through. And his attitude. You know, he kind of accepted things for what they were after a while. He was very angry initially. I didn't know him when he was going through those emotions, but he went through the stages of grieving. By the time I met Gary, he had already accepted his fate. The fact that I came along and gave him hope that he would one day be free was just kind of a bonus for him because he had already accepted the idea that he was going to die in prison. The following is an excerpt from one of the letters that Gary wrote to Lisa. Oh, by the way, if you get a chance, could you ask your paralegal, Miss Tori, if she's bored, she can always drop me a line, and I won't keep her out late. I'll get her back by curfew, and I'll do my best to make her laugh. Everyone deserves to escape reality for just a few minutes. Oh, and let her know. I'm sorry, but I'm not looking for romance. I have someone waiting for me on the other side. I believe it will come a lot sooner rather than later. I'm fine and welcome it. People should not think of it as a sad occasion. Rather, they should be happy. Because I'll be happy for a change. We have been brainwashed into fearing death. When in reality, we never die. We take a break and get into a new car, vehicle, body, and learn some more. One thing I haven't figured out yet is why we don't remember our last ride. I was told a long time ago that I'm a very new soul. Maybe that accounts for a lifetime of loneliness and misery. I will do better the next time we meet, but we won't remember. Thanks for all you and your crew are doing, regardless how this turns out. Signed, Gary the Innocent. What we gave to Gary was the um the idea that the community, the court of public opinion, believed in him and believed in his innocence. And that was enough for him because he recognized that he was never going to have a quality of life, whether he was in jail or in prison or out of prison. He obviously wanted an opportunity to be free and be out before he passed, but that didn't happen. But he knew that people loved him, cared about him, and knew that he didn't do this and supported him. And that meant more to him than anything. Um, and as he, as he stated, you know, he didn't want to be found not guilty. He wanted to be found innocent. He wanted people to know that he didn't do this. And, you know, we all believe that. And there was no question. There was no doubt in our mind. The first time it hit me was when I listened to the recording of the phone call and heard Jennifer Westcott say they didn't even bring her in the house, they made her sit in the van. I knew right then, wow, Gary's innocent. The stretches of imagination that you have to go along with to believe Gary Thibodeau is involved are, are uh, fantastical. Um, so no, I, 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 don't, I don't think Gary Thibodeau was guilty. From what they had on the guy, they didn't have anything. Everything they said was just bullshit. 
I am absolutely 100% convinced that neither Gary nor Richard Thibodeau had anything to do with the abduction uh, of Heidi Helm. I was obsessed with trying to fix what I felt to be this horrible, horrible injustice and that Gary was a victim of and marginalized by our criminal justice system to the point where those that could have made a difference or those in power just turned a blind eye and didn't care. I talk about this, I get so upset because they killed my brother. It, they didn't take a gun and shoot him, but they might just as well have done that. Hey, Peoples for the People fans. Thanks for listening. This is the last episode of Heidi and Gary's story. But before I say goodbye for now, I want to let you know about a book that is soon to come out. It's called Scrapped, Justice and a Teen Informant, the real story of Heidi Allen's kidnapping, written by Lisa Peebles and John O'Brien. If you liked this podcast, you will love this book. It's everything you heard and more from the perspective of Gary's defense attorney and reporter covering the case as all of the new evidence was discovered. For more information on the release date, follow me on Twitter at AlexPeebles93. I also want to take this time to thank everyone who helped develop and produce this podcast. It has been a long, fulfilling journey, and I could not have done it without the help of Underdog Podcasts and my editorial producer, David Graff. Until next time, thanks again for listening to Peebles for the People. that free man go Lord you let that free man go Lord you let that free man go Lord won't you let that free man Uh, that's the that's the thing that really kind of bothers me and it's just it's just kind of disgusting about this case is that um, the one person who could have opened the prison door for Gary the one person Greg Oaks he knew Gary was innocent he knows it to this day I guarantee it I mean he's never said that to me but I mean he, I, the way he explains things and um, our lame excuses and explanations I, I, I really think he knows Gary didn't do it, Richard didn't do it, and for whatever reason, uh, Oaks was more interested in appeasing the sheriff's office, Heidi's family, getting reelected, I don't know, but he is one of the most, I don't know, just despicable people in this whole story.